If I had to describe that day, the first thing that I remember is the light and the sound is the main thing that just strikes me. And then the two shadows, but especially the sound and the light. The light because it was so bright, the sound because it, it scared me. So. Yeah, we heard a, a sound in, the, in that direction. It was sort of like a, a buzzing noise. It was a very, you know, it was like a buzzing, the buzzing of what you would hear at an electric station or um, anywhere close to that. Like something's being zapped, <laughs> almost. It kind of sounded like bass, but more like a, yeah, like a machine bee sound. So just very strange. First, I thought maybe it was just me that heard it, but it, the other kids around me had heard it. It sounded like it was coming from everywhere. It went louder and louder, and then it stopped. And we ignored it, like, okay, I don't know what that is. And then a couple of minutes later, it started again. It was much, much louder, like really, really loud, like a swarm of bees. And that's when I started getting scared, and everybody started getting scared. And then we started running away from there. I noticed that there was a large shape amongst the trees, which we couldn't really figure out what it was. It looked like a, a big rock. Um, it looked like water was trickling over it and the sun was reflecting in that water. That's the best way I can describe it. It didn't look like a, a smooth metallic object as you would, you would think when you were looking at a UFO on TV as we depict them. It looked natural. It didn't look like a, anything man-made. Media Roots Radio. This is Bobby Martin. And this is Abby Martin. So today we're bringing a guest on the podcast. Um, Abby, do you want to say a little bit about who our guest is? His name is Randall Nickerson. Um, the film, the documentary Aerial Phenomenon, is about the mass sighting in the aerial school in Rua, Zimbabwe, that happened September 16th, 1994. That we have talked about previously on our UFO series podcast, Robbie, you dosed me on that incredibly fascinating event that kind of altered my entire perception about mass sightings, about everything that had to do with UFOs. Um, my entire life, I just always kind of looked at them as like intriguing, isolated events other than something like the Phoenix Lights, which is still up until this point was the most interesting to me. But this really just blew me away. Um, it's something that is entirely different than anything I'd ever heard before, and it's very captivating. The children were all very believable. It was very creepy when you played the clips of them to me. And so when a media roots head in our Discord brought up the fact that there was a documentary out about the story in Zimbabwe, I was like, oh my God, this would be a perfect guest to follow up with on Media Roots Radio. And um, so I, I watched the documentary, you watched the documentary, we both thought it was really great, and so we wanted to talk to Randall Nickerson about it. Um, so I guess before we we bring him on, Robbie, do you want to talk a little bit about your takeaway from the documentary? Because you're the one who came across the story initially and told me about it, so why don't you talk about what you took away from it? Yeah, I mean, I 
if you if you had looked this subject up on YouTube, like in the last couple of years, you would have found a smattering of different clips that look like they were multi-generation copies from old news broadcasts, some old documentaries here and there. Um, it was hard to piece together the entire story. Uh, I knew that there was a documentary that was either already out or coming out. I don't think it was Randall's documentary, and I think he's going to, you know, he's already touched on the fact that um, he, I guess, put a lot of work into this other documentary that came out about it, but wasn't credited for it. This is actually his own documentary, and he seems like he laid most of the groundwork for, like, basically getting this story back into people's consciousnesses in general. So, I mean, he's been working on it since 2008. Um, and you know, that's how many years is that? Uh, now it's 2023. I mean, that's pretty fucking, I, I'm horrible at math. Absolutely wild that he put this much work into it and that really he, you know, he said the original, I guess, assembly cut or rough cut of it was three hours what they ended up going with was like a little, I think it was like an hour and a half. I mean, and the amount of footage that he seems like he has for this uh, could easily make like a two season long miniseries, like on Netflix or something, you know? So um, I didn't get a chance to talk to him too much off air, but you know, if he's listening to our podcast after the fact, R Randall, you should try pitching like a miniseries of all the footage you have, like, um, you know, uh, I don't know how much work it was to edit the thing or whatever, but like the just the amount of footage that you are sitting on, uh, some you could easily get someone I think to to you know buy that um, and air air that in some kind of documentary format because just what he has in this movie alone it just adds so much more glue and cohesion to the things that I've already seen that just make everything so much more credible and as we're going to touch on in our interview with Randall, one of the things I think that stood out to me the most that really sticks with me. Um, and I think is always going to stick with me from this story from now on, like as a primary thing is the idea of trauma that occurs from the, from what happened to these children uh, and the visceral trauma that you see on screen from them actually having like flashbacks to their own PTSD during these experiences, even ones who mostly describe the experience positively, it is very eerie and unsettling to see these kids reliving like real heightened emotional state, like flashbacks. I mean, you hear the girl saying that her heart was beating slow and fast, slow and fast. And the guy's like, you mean like you were excited and scared? And she's like, yeah, like I like both, you know, like that's, that's it just sounds really interesting like like it's it's something you don't normally hear because these kids do not know how to articulate themselves and make you know like let's say spin a story or like whitewash a story for for easy digestion i mean it sounds very authentic from the way that she's describing it and let's talk about what that story was uh for those who haven't listened to our previous podcast about this or who haven't followed this at all and are listening for the first time um, about what is the aerial school phenomenon. On this day in September 1994, uh, around, I guess around 100 children or so in this giant playground in this school in Rua, Zimbabwe, 
heard uh, different sounds like a buzzing or some people testify to hearing a flute sound actually which is which i want to hear eerie. like for as someone who's a yeah. sound guy listens to like a lot of experimental music and stuff like that i that i was really hoping they'd go more into the sound you know it's i'm often i'm often um frustrated by the focus on visual uh eyewitness accounts like the idea that they would want them to sketch these um you know these creatures that they that these uh, the idea that they wanted them to sketch what these creatures looked like and they got so many kids to draw visual depictions these impressionistic you know visuals of what they thought these creatures looked like uh it's kind of frustrating to me that we actually have evidence of a very interesting sound uh that actually frightened direct in fact, of all the things you hear the kids saying that were frightening, you really don't you don't hear very many of them saying they were like frightened by the way that they looked. You hear one of the girls sounding very frightened by the way that it sounded, which for me as a sound guy is very intriguing. And I wish that they had had more um, stuff about trying to recreate that sound, not the documentary as it fall for this. I mean the original, you know, sort of. John Mack and the people who are there interviewing all of them. It's like, I think there's always the mistake of focusing on only one type of sensory evidence. Uh, and I think audio evidence is equally important, if not honestly, maybe even more important in, in this specific example. Like, what, what the hell was right. this mm -hmm. sound that actually, because a little kid she described it as a flute sound that scared her. Now, why would a flute sound scare a child? Was it ear piercing? Was it like a shrill, like me, like overblow type flute mm -hmm. sound? Was it a melody on a plate on a flute that sounded like a scary melody, like something you'd hear in like an old Disney Halloween special? What does she mean by that? There's no follow-up to that. And I think that that, those are the only details that I wish were followed up on more. Um, very yeah. creepy very creepy what these kids describe um yeah the flute especially so then they hear this sound they see a flash of light and then the sound i think is what prompts them to go run to see what it is the flash of light happens then the young they hear the kids sound, first. and then they the young Youngest, kids go to see what they what's yeah. in the brush um, as the documentary explains, this is, you know, in Zimbabwe, this is a, a brush that's pretty dangerous. The kids are directed to not go past the line that they are able to because of dangerous wildlife that's in the wild African brush. And so a lot of them are just watching from a little bit from afar um, and they see a craft, which they describe, uh, you know, like the the traditional kind of oval flying saucer like craft with a, a kind of a ladder type thing that comes down i'm not sure if it was hovering or not and then they testify to seeing not just one but two skinny creatures one that has long black hair and the other that does not they are wearing black suits that they describe as looking almost like scuba yeah. suits black smooth plastic one of the witnesses who's now an adult says that she describes it almost as smooth as like someone who has like a lot of botox yeah, that was really um, interesting and the faces of these creatures were expressionless with the wide almond eyes 
Um, but again, that one had long, stringy black hair. Uh, they moved in a very creepy fashion where it almost seemed like they were floating. Sometimes they appeared at two places at once. Um, it was not following our traditional perception of gravity. They described it as a human on the moon. Which can I just comment? Not can as bouncy. Really I think all of the, th- yeah. if you take all these things together, it really does seem to lean in the direction of some kind of, it's, it's, it's actually altering your perception. You're not actually seeing something that's necessarily really physically in front of you in the sense that you're watching something physical defying the laws of our known physics. It, it seems to imply that there's some kind of mental projection of some kind happening with the, with the things that you take all these things together, especially the communication with everything else combined, the slowing down, the jerky movements, the t- appearing in two places at once, all that kind of stuff. Right, because even though time slowed down, the creatures seemed to move very... Um, they described them as like moving in slow yeah. motion, mm-hmm. too, where it was like you're watching a replay of like a, you know, like a football mm-hmm. replay on on a sports channel. I mean, that that's really creepy because at first, for some reason, I remember it being described that the creatures were quickly moving from one location to the next, but that's not what happened. I think it's because some of the kids perceived them like almost at two places at once, but then other kids were like, no, they moved in slow motion in this kind of weird, creepy, bouncy way. So why don't you talk about how the kids like, you know, the documentary describes one of the creatures actually approaching the children closer and looking at them and then something else happening that is also a really interesting aspect of this. Well, yeah, I mean, the the I, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but the trauma um, aspect of it, I thought, was is particularly impactful from this, that there's uh, so many different levels and layers of the trauma that these kids are experiencing. Some of these kids, as you said, m- this might have even been their very first memory, because some of these children were like four or five when they experienced this spectacular event. Uh, some of the kids that were in charge of the younger kids, the oldest or the oldest kids, I should say, who were present on the yard that day because no uh, adults, like actual adults were present, had originally gone over to this site, this witness site, uh, when they heard younger children in distress. And they, you know, that already must have kicked up their adrenaline a little bit. So imagine just being a, a you know young enough kid, you're 12, and your job is to watch over the really young kids, and then you hear like a guttural, visceral ch- scream, you know, where you're like, oh shit, like, am I, you know, because you're going to get in trouble if under your watch, like a little kid gets like very hurt or something, you know, physically hurt on your, uh, the, you know, in the play schoolyard. So, but then that you hear the child actually describing how they, their heart was, uh, you know, beating fast and then slow. And then the other girl says that basically she experienced what seemed to be like such visceral fear when this creature started walking towards them, started approaching them. Like it, it was approaching them. I mean, that imagine if you're already just seeing something so outside of the norm of reality as a kid, witnessing it from afar, but then it's actually paying attention to you specifically out of all the other children that's another aspect of this which is not clear based on all the eyewitness accounts did the did this experience make them feel like they were being specifically focused on as a part of a kind of you know whatever mental hold this experience had over them or whatever mental altered mental state they were in 
because one of the children also describes it as it felt like it was looking at all of us. Like it felt like it was looking directly at them. And they, even when they looked into its eyes, they felt like its eyes were telling them a story basically uh, about like how we're getting too technologically advanced and we should stop. I mean, which is absolutely ridiculous for a child to, you know, re relay a, even the way she says it sounds like a childlike way of explaining it. Like her grammar is like not correct and stuff. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I don't know if you were asking about those things, Abby, but no, no, I was, I was. And, you know, we kind of hypothesized and speculated before about this event specifically, as well as many other sightings that have been reported as, you know, mass hallucination from something like the BZ, some sort of BZ weapon or something that maybe was manufactured during when psychedelics were being manufactured as and weaponized by the U.S. government. But even something like the mass hysteria justification or dismissal or mass hallucinations, it just doesn't, it it just still doesn't make sense for something on this massive scale to have everyone share a hallucination that's identical, interpreted from their own point of view. And then the mass hysteria thing, I've seen some pretty colonial, weird, Mm anti-African takes on how this is just really prevalent because of how, you know, mythological and superstitious Africans still are. Well, you can't really talk about this school in that way because a lot of these kids were like private school students who were like American and British. It was a very culturally mixed like like randall's gonna talk about in the interview that there was no it wasn't you know a lot of so-called mass hysteria events other than like disease outbreaks and and those kind of things are mostly religious in nature where people believe Mm -hmm. who are part of one specific religion or culture who believe have very similar uh you know ingrained cultural beliefs sort of have a shared delusion that is that is a thing, but that's not what. There's no way you can say that about this school, you know. If it was maybe one specific uh, African tribe that that was very rooted in like folklore as as a way, you know, as as baked into their society, maybe you could say that. But not with this, because there is no specific religion. They were diverse with uh, race. Uh, where they were from. Some of them were like um, on visas. I think some of their parents were just like on work visas there. They didn't actually live there. Uh, so all of their upbringings and their cultures were completely diverse. Um, that's one of the ways to easily debunk that idea. Um, so, Right. I don't know where I stand on a lot of things yeah. out there about UFOs and aliens, and I don't know where I stand on this. All I know, Robbie is that I believe the kids and I believe the adults who were children at the time. And I don't know what that means. I, I don't know how to explain what it is that they saw, but I believe that they saw what they are telling us that they saw. Well, that's the, that's the um, dilemma about it. Cause it's like, you can't write it off by saying this was a, an experimental military drug or um, you can't write it off by saying it was some kind of hoax done by a military weapon uh or or some kind of design to you know show trick children into thinking they had seen like a ufo and in fact it was a military aircraft there's too many elements to it that suggest that these children saw exactly what they're describing that they 
that there is really no reason to question anything that they're saying, really, about what they're describing. Maybe some of the details are a little bit different, but just like um, you know, Randall says that the consistency and the fact that it seems like they're all witnessing a similar event and interpreting it slightly differently, having maybe more emphasis on certain parts, but all really seeing the same thing. Like it's very evident in their descriptions. That is fascinating and really hard to find. I think also sets it apart from this idea of mass hysteria or other, even other mass sighting events, to be honest. Um, so there, it's totally yeah. incomparable. I've never heard of anything similar to it. We talked before about the Australian school incident where I don't know how many people witnessed a craft that they actually went mm-hmm. right up to and there were no creatures there and it certainly wasn't a hundred kids, but that that's very eerie and very creepy, but there's certainly nothing that matches the scale and scope of this aerial school phenomenon. And I haven't been convinced by any of the debunking. I've looked at all of it. I mean, there's plenty of material out there that have, you know, speculated away, dismissed the entire story with variations of explanations, everything ranging from an elaborate puppet show hoax to the mass hysteria to suggestibility. And I just, I simply haven't been convinced no. by any of it. I, after seeing this documentary, especially, I, I really do believe these people and Again, what does that mean? I can't explain it. I, I think it's beyond the realm of my understanding, but my mind is certainly open. And that's how we're approaching this interview today, Robbie. We're, uh, we're excited to interview Randall Nickerson, the director of Aerial Phenomenon, about why he decided to embark on this nearly 20-year journey of creating this documentary, why he wanted to focus on this event, and the fascinating tales that he tells along the way that you know, a lot of which he wasn't able to fit into the documentary, but it's a, it's, it's a lot and it's extremely captivating and, you know, leaving it, I have more questions than answers, but I think that that's just the way it goes with these things. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, really, really excited to bring Randall on. So without further ado. Randall Nickerson. Um, Randall, I, my brother and I both watched the documentary. I was really blown away by the amount of depth that you covered, the amount of time you clearly put into it. Um, this is one of the most intriguing events that I've ever come across in terms of mass sightings, UFO encounters, and the like. And so it was really incredible for me to, to dig in here. And um, it's a, a great honor to have you on to unravel this captivating phenomenon a little bit more with my brother and I on media roots radio. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, what I, I guess I want to start here by just asking you what got you interested in the topic in the first place? Like why did you begin to research this? And especially why did you decide to make a documentary about it? Um, well, to be honest, like, you know, I, I, I can't really go into too much detail about something that I actually have seen. Um, that got me curious, but that wasn't my, that wasn't what got me interested in film. Uh, I was actually there on uh, September 11th. I was two blocks away filming. Um, unfortunately, 
you were just talking about you didn't want to divulge too much about a personal encounter you had. Of course, we would love to hear about it, but I totally understand if it's too private for you. But you were also speaking about um, filming block mere blocks away from the World Trade Center towers. That's pretty incredible, Randall, that you were there on site. So keep keep going into that. Well, it's two blocks away um, when Building Two came down. Um, I, I was—I mean, everybody. I mean, I had friends that were in the building. I mean, I was living in Manhattan, and uh, so that—that I, I, that was a pretty pivotal because I went down to volunteer after. You know, they kind of closed off the scene down there, and uh, uh, I tried to get in, but I, you know, there were police all over the place, um, and. Uh, you know, I went down to volunteer and I just realized like, yeah, I can do electrical work. Like, you know, just, it was a moment in time where something hugely monumental happened. And I felt like I, what did I have to offer here? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really changed me from being a, a person in front of the camera, a person, um, you know, outward bound to some, like, I don't, I don't care. I want to, I want to tell, tell other people's stories. Um, that was really the major shift was in 2001. Um, yeah, trauma. Yeah. One of those events. I mean, that was just whatever. I hate to bring it up cause it really traumatizes everybody when I even talk about it, but it was, you know, that footage, I still have it. I never sold it. I, Whoa. um, for a lot of filmmakers or people shooting that day that it's so personal, you know, Cause you know, you, you hear me screaming at the top of my lungs for my life and running and everybody around me screaming for their lives running from that cloud of, we didn't even know what happened. You know, it was like a 2.8 on the Richter scale and two blocks northbound was a, a group of about maybe 20 of us as close as it, that we could get. And, um, yeah, anyway, it was, I don't want to, <sighs> But I mean, it's funny because I I think I've watched that video twice because it's just so disturbing what happened down there. So right. I don't know. That's but that did did change me to uh, thinking about um, doing something bigger than myself. You know, not not about um, being seen, but helping others be seen. You know, it was a big shift for all of us. Actually, everybody that was there. My friends that were there, I mean, all those people were in the film business or the music business, and uh, everybody left after that. My whole circle of friends, a lot of people, <clears throat> you know, everybody moved out. It was such a traumatizing event for everybody, I think, that were there. Especially you know, in New York, it was a very different experience. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it's still difficult to look at stuff like that, Randall. So that was your professional pivot from working within the industry to kind of taking on a directing role and approaching this specific topic in a way that you did what, but you were following this kind of stuff before, or you said that you had a personal experience. We don't have to get into that, but, um, but you, so you've been kind of loosely following like UFO phenomenon for quite a while. And then did you just come across this mass sighting and just, was it just really peculiar? Like talk about your journey there. I was in the middle of filming about Bud Hopkins. He's a UFO researcher and a famous artist. Um, I mean, probably people don't know him, but he's in the Guggenheim. He's in all the different museums all around the world, or at least in 
Yeah, I don't know outside the country, but I'm sure he is. But he was a UFO researcher who had had a sighting in 1964, and uh, he wrote, you know, he didn't do anything immediately after that, uh, but he did run into the subject matter again, and he started studying it and devoted a large part of his life to researching um, this phenomenon. And uh, I started documenting his life. And um, that was kind of the, the, that that was my first jaunt into this subject matter. Um, and then at that right in when I was finished filming, he actually passed away. Um, and so uh, it was just, yeah, wow. Watching somebody die is a whole nother thing. Um, and, uh, and that's when Ariel came on, you know, I got the opportunity to, uh, to make a film about this incident, which I had seen, clips of a long time ago and i was like wow what are they talking whatever they're talking about that i definitely in my opinion felt like they were truthful uh these kids and that kind of started i got the opportunity through a relationship actually that of a friendship if that makes sense um because i showed that person my you know my one of my other short films and she said to me uh, do you want it? Would you be interested in making a film about John Mack and his trip to Africa uh, and these children? I'm like, well, sure. I mean, look at it. So it, it, it began a long process. So it sounds it sounds kind of serendipitous. So you were you had already heard of this uh, this aerial school incident, and then you and then someone that you had through a personal connection just sort of ha- offered you this or would, did you already, were you already sort of putting feelers out there to see if you could talk to anybody? Um, no, okay. I wasn't putting feelers out at all. It, uh, interesting. I happened to be over at somebody's house and, and, uh, was dating somebody at the time. And, um, uh, we went over to her sister's house who had a relationship with John Mack. And, mm. um, I had shown her the film that I, had just done. And she said, Hey, would you be, she really like, appreciated it and liked it. And said, would you be interested in doing this story on the African kids? And then she plugged me into the John Mack Institute and it was originally supposed to be a DVD project. Um, would you be interested in making like, you know, something short and, you know, a DVD project of just John Mack's material. And, then I started digging into more the more I started digging into it. I transferred the beta SPs and, uh, you know, 10 bit full on, you know, everything. Cause I, I wanted the, you know, best quality I could get from all the original tapes. And, um, then, uh, I just, I started researching. I started researching into the school and whether it was there, what, what was the deal? I was told all kinds of stories that it wasn't there. It was burnt down, et cetera. And, um, and then I located one of the reporters over in Africa and, uh, she said, Hey, it's still there. And three of the teachers that were there in 94 are still working there. So I got on a plane. I mean, I had to prepare for like two months, like, okay, I'm going to Africa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do I need? Um, and I, I'll never forget it. Cause I'm on the plane, you know, Zimbabwe was under, uh, you know, the State Department said you couldn't even enter the country uh, because of the political unrest. 
people were being killed and threatened over the politics. So going into that country, I mean, I had no idea what I was in for. I prepared, but everybody on the plane was like, dude, you, what are you doing? You gotta, you really gotta be careful over here. <laughs> like this is a whole different deal. You're not ready. You know, they, it was just inter- just on the plane. What year and was this? When I got on the ground. That was 08. Oh my God. So that's how long you've been, beginning. that's how long you've been working on this. That's incredible. Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, I've, I've, I lived in Africa for a year and three months total. Wow. Three times for this story. It's amazing that at the beginning you got turned on to the research of John Mack, the John Mack Institute. I mean, through the documentary, it tells the story of this Harvard psychiatrist who, you know, in many ways risked his reputation. Harvard definitely was not happy about it. They they went on the defense quite a bit to try to, you know, discredit um, this man who had an extensive history of interviewing children, being an expert witness to, you know, children's testimony in this regard. And he, you, you kind of walk us through his experience being completely convinced by these children alongside a BBC war reporter um, which I found harrowing in the sense that this BBC war reporter had been, you know, he, he had documented mass death. He had, he had been shot himself and he said on camera that this was actually scarier than anything he had documented through his war reporting, that this incident, this inexplicable incident was just horrifying to him because it was just unexplained. And the BBC, of course, didn't take it seriously, even though they said you need, you know, one or two, you need two sources, sometimes three. Well, this is 62 children that we have (laughs) Um, and and even more, as you'll um, clearly explain. So I guess walk us through these two figures that unfortunately died before you were able to really follow up with them personally and why they were such central pillars to telling this. Um, yeah, John Mack had passed away before I started. Um, I actually asked, uh, it was the year I wanted to interview him is he passed away like four months later. Um, so, you know, Tim, Tim was alive while I was making this summer. He passed away in 2011. Um, but yeah, they, uh, I mean, they both have pretty riveting stories are people that are trying to preserve Tim's archive of footage, which is enormous, um, of, of the atrocities in Africa. I mean, war zones, um, it's a huge effort that's been going on for years to preserve all his beta SPs that he shot over and over for ITN. And then he went on to, um, uh, BBC. Um, but these men, uh, you know, they went beyond the call of duty, I would say, you know, were with uh, something they really stretched, and he says it himself, it stretched his mind. I think that's an interesting way to put it. Like, it made him have to consider things that he really didn't want to, and he'd already had to look at the worst of humanity in warfare, etc. Um, and I think John Mack probably didn't want to take that risk, but mostly inside i think he psychological problem this thing i you know what am i going to do not say anything you know i think that was john's you know personal um 
challenge, you know, a conundrum. It's a conundrum, I guess you could call it. What do you do? Say something or not, or deal with it or not. Um, so I think they both men um, had that struggle uh, with the entire. Well, with Tim, it was with just this this case. With John, it was the case, but it was also several others. Um, so it's it's uh, it was it was nice to have Tim. Right, you know, he 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 kind of became the narrator instead of somebody like me or somebody that doesn't know wasn't there. Well, it was like I don't need anything. I just need to. These people can tell their own story. There's enough there, and enough that I shot. You there? Yeah. Um, okay. one of the interesting aspects, um that Abby and I both took away from the movie was I didn't previously realize how large the age range was for the children that had witnessed that. Um, mm-hmm. and it's fascinating. I mean, some were as young as four or five and some were as old as 12. And, you know, it's it, for some reason, at least for me, it's, it would seem like you can write it off more as sort of children's children, playing in fantasy if they were all maybe of the same age group. But the fact that they do range uh, to that degree, it just somehow makes it seem so much more credible and hard to, you know, use that kind of debunking logic against. And part of me is wondering, um, I mean, what was John Max like actual pivotal turning point where he, at what like what was it specifically for him, especially from his like clinical psychiatry perspective that was like going from the realm of you know just sort of analyzing this because like at the point where he's actually saying he believes them feels like a almost like he has been you know sort of personally invested in himself maybe more than he had planned to from the beginning. It's kind of sounds like that's part of what you're saying um and I'm just wondering if there was there a specific moment like specific thing for him maybe even like a psychiatric phenomenon or psychological phenomenon that convinced him that they, they had actually experienced this. Um, well, I mean, he says it himself as because of, you know, he had dealt with all kinds of, uh, types of psychological, you know, uh, difficulties, challenges in people, um, that it didn't fit into any category. Uh, I think what really made him shift to be honest, was he was just studying people in the United States at that point, you know, and it was, he just started traveling to other countries where these incidents had taken place. And I think, especially with children, he had already, I think, probably worked with some smaller, you know, younger children around this issue, just out of curiosity, I'm sure, too. But when he ran into Ariel, I think that affected him on a, another level because of the fact that it was a rural school, mixed race school, mixed religion school. Um, there were witnesses, there were adults in the area. There were, you know, there was a bunch of different uh, things that just, I think hit him in a different way. And at the same time, you know, his books coming out his he's getting attacked by Harvard. I mean, the poor man, uh, I, you know, I'm sure I, I didn't see a frustration or anger about it from him until 
uh, when was that? That was after, uh, I didn't see that until years later, years and years later before he died. Um, that I saw, wow, he's, you know, he took a hit. He didn't take a hit from losing his job from Harvard. What it did was it, it alienated him from his friends, his mm -hmm. colleagues, and they were the life of the party. You know, he was a Pulitzer Prize winning professor of psychiatry with an impeccable record. And then he, you know, people thought he went off the deep end because he was saying, hey, wait a second, there's some truth to these stories here. That's not, you know, the, I don't see mental illness in these subjects. I don't and when see, you, you know. When you say that they didn't fit into any category, uh, what do you mean by that? Like, what what was his field of research specifically analyzing people who were witness to these kind of things? And then what what was so fascinating about like the the aspect of these children's stories to him? Uh, I think it was the consistency in comparison to other events that he studied other other people that he studied. Um, I think that was part of it. Uh, you know, the things he was looking at in his, or, or were schizophrenia, you know, all the different types of um, phenomena, you know, uh, mental illnesses, anything in the DSM-4. Um, that's the, well, at that time it was DSM-4. I think that's the medical, like, talks about every kind of medical diagnosis and, brain um so yeah I, I i think uh that i mean he says it himself like it's not the way these people describe these things is like describes a real experience and i think because he, he had you know been in clinic uh, clinician forever and knows when somebody's lying to them or you know fabricating a story or you know uh, other psychiatrists that I interviewed from Harvard say, said, you know, uh, you know, will I be fooled once? Maybe, maybe, but I know what I, you know, I'll, I know when I'm being fooled or told a story or something. And so John Mack's uh, statement really was, was had something actually happen to them. What it is can be questioned. That's fine. That's, and I'm totally open to that too question that but don't question that something didn't happen to those people you know right the effects are, the post the post effects are also symbolic of a real event PSD um you know anyway that, that's that answered your question no no absolutely and and one thing I think it's uh John Mack who says that if it were everyone telling the exact same story then that would be kind of a signal that there is some something being made up or someone started something and then, Correct. you know, people are repeating the exact same high. story, but yeah, everyone yeah. who's telling a different perspective of the same story that rings more true. The confidence that the kids are telling the story, um, as you mentioned, the kids being impacted by it in a very negative way. I have a child. I, you know, you know, when children are lying or repeating something that they were told to by other kids, if these kids wanted to make up some big hoax to trick adults, they wouldn't be impacted by it for weeks, months, years 
sometimes 30 years into the future as you interview adults who were children at the time. I mean, they, they were so impacted by it, many in a really negative way, very emotionally traumatized, which would not be the case if kids were just like, hey, let's make this up. And it started with the you know one child and then it just spread like a game of telephone. It would just be kind of like a funny thing. Oh, yeah, we we made this up and then they just forget about it. Right. And like my brother said, the range of ages here, um, I could see maybe a couple kids having the consistency of, you know, a few days, maybe even the teenage, the teenagers more so than I can the really young people. Um, But yeah, when you have an age range of seven, eight years spanning, you know, the amount of children who saw this and the different ages that they were, it just be, it just kind of falls apart when you're looking at, oh, this was just simply made up. Clearly, something happened, Randall. Yeah, you can't, you know, I, that's, a, yeah, that's what uh, really kind of led me toward, you know, I don't have anything to gain, whether it's real or not. You know, either way, as a filmmaker, it's a fascinating story, right? It's a fascinating yeah. cast of characters, regardless of what, what happened or what it was, it was a great story. It wasn't going to change my moving on forward, but it wasn't. And, and then I, the more you go, well, the more I went into it, all the questions I had, I'm like, well, was it a hoax? Was it a mass hallucination? What, you know, all the different things, or was it some kind of uh, hysteria? You know, all the different things I went into. Was it something in our space program? Um, was it something from another space program? Uh, you know, I researched all that. So, but I kept coming and meeting these people and today, and they're sitting in front of me telling me, no, that really happened, man. (laughs) Yeah. Women, men. It's funny because the men, this is kind of an interesting, the, the males are, were, are highly reluctant to speak publicly. Hmm. Interesting. The females are more, more willing to speak. And, and I found that pretty consistent. Wow. And, but you, you mentioned something. I don't, you know, it really depended on where the child was and what their families, uh, you know, how, whether they interpreted it as a negative experience or a positive experience, there was both. Do you know what I mean? And it yeah. really depended on the religion they had, the family structure, how that, supported or didn't support them um, because they're children. They were extremely impressionable by what they saw, what, you know, especially the real younger ones. But that's what I found interesting too, was the more impressionable younger ones had actually a more detailed story. Interesting. <laughs> that's fascinating to me because, you know what I mean? There, there were details. Yeah, there's, man, I could talk for weeks about this. You know, the backside, the pe- the things people don't see. The only thing you see is an hour and 38 minutes of footage. Oh, I can imagine. A lot more. Yeah, especially spending the time that you did with the actual witnesses. Because one angle of this that I, I mean, I thought about somewhat, but didn't really feel the full impact of it until watching your documentary is like, not just that there was trauma, for a lot of these people, like even like acutely in the moment, but long-term trauma, but also just the of how heightened, even if they did have a positive experience from this, the experience was very intense, seemingly for all of them. 
Like it was a very heightened, intense experience for a young child's mind to be subjected to. And that I really felt that while watching the documentary. And I, I guess just quickly wanted to mention some of the interesting details that I'd never heard before that speak to like real time, you know, heightened, almost like tr- trauma in the moment, like the older kids uh, hearing the younger kids crying and sort of being alarmed by that and going to check on what was going on. That was, that's fascinating. And, you know, then when you learn the age ranges that they, the older kids probably had like kind of almost like an instinctual danger cue and they heard like a younger child in distress. And then yeah, they were the prefects. They were the yeah. prefects. So they were in charge. Yeah. They were responsible for those younger kids. So which, which is, and yeah, when they heard that they paid attention and then, you know, they thought the kids were hurt or making it up or something. And then they saw it. Absolutely. So they didn't go in looking for it. They, they found it. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you see oh, some, God. you see some, the, <laughs> you see some of the video uh, interviews uh, that you include in your doc where as um, one of the, I think John Mack actually asked one of the um, female witnesses to sit in the emotion that she almost seems to relive as she's retelling her eyewitness account. You literally see her almost like well up into tears when she describes mm-hmm. the fear that she felt. I mean, it's incredible to watch mm-hmm. a child expressing those kinds of like, almost like PTSD, like emotion, like having a flashback to something traumatic. Yeah. Um, about something that is, you know, so w- would be completely unbelievable to most people, unless you really sit in this idea that there was there was severe trauma for some of these people, not just the heightened emotional aspect of it, but Definitely. that that you know, as I think Abby was telling me this even before I watched the documentary, that there was way more than just the sixty-two children. These are just the children that have been able to break through whatever barriers their parents or society or their own mental, you know, frame put on themselves to be able to actually speak about it. So yeah, maybe clarify if I got something wrong there. Um, well, there were 62 kids that did drawings. Oh, so okay. Okay. The headmaster. And I got to say something cause this is sort of under the cuff. There's been people, you know, there's a major project going on by a huge studio who I've, uh, who I had, um, you know, uh, uh, this would have been a, a major film, um, but they decided to take basically all the information I gave them and go off on their own. And they're likely not going to give me credit for it. There's another film that also did the same thing. I helped them. I got them the footage. I did the work. I did the work. So I'm, I'm standing up and saying, uh, just, blanket out there into the world like hey you know i risked my life found the school found all those kids and other people have taken advantage of that and profiting from that so i just have to call it out because it's not okay um as far as the kids uh there were 62 but the reason i'm saying this is because this information likely somebody else is going to use um that's already been over to Africa already. And, um, basically, uh, going to claim that they did it all themselves. Okay. Sorry. I just, it's, it's a, a frustrating part of this business. Um, and so there's, there were 62 two kids that did drawings, but the, the headmaster was very wise 
and he kept the grade ones and twos and K's out of, you know, didn't have them do drawings, didn't even discuss it with them because they were already traumatized. So you're talking at least another 40, God only knows, you know, there, I can give you the exact number, but well over a hundred kids. Um, and when I was, I didn't really realize that until I, I heard him say it in an interview, um, an archival interview from back in 94 that he had left them out when he was, this was an interview with the headmaster and John Mack. Uh, he left the grade ones and twos out. And so I started to find those younger kids who are now in their thirties, uh, early thirties. And, um, um, they, you know, remember everything. Um, and they, you know, they never got a chance to talk about it. They never got a chance to draw. I mean, it was pretty amazing when I would sit with those, those first, you know, the, the younger kids now adults, um, that were in grade one or grade two, they would just, I'd say, can you remember it and draw it? And they would just draw it like, boom. Wow. Like it's on the top of their mind. I got those drawings here and, uh, it just, they never forgot about it. It still sticks in their mind. Um, yeah, I don't know how to help people. The only way I could think about was to tell their story and, um, hope they process it, work through it in whatever way they need to. Well, especially because this is a source of some debunking. I've seen people say, oh, well, what about the other 140 kids who were in the play yard that day? Well, that's not entirely true. As you said, this is at least 40 more children who simply were not exposed to the media. They didn't do the drawings. They've been silently suffering the trauma, internalizing what could potentially be their most formative first memories of their lives. I mean, we're talking about five, six-year-old children who some of my first memories, my earliest childhood memories were from that age. Um, This could have been the first memory that some of these kids had. I mean, what did that do to them? How did that impact their lives? How did this event, how were they able to process this properly? And the fact that you say that some of these kids actually had the most vivid recollection, the ones who were the youngest, I find that fascinating. Yeah, I, you know, I, I look at them and, uh, you know, all the different, I look at a lot of things like what career choices did they make? You know, um, one, you know, one of the grade one women that was from grade one, um, she, the reason she didn't want to go on camera with me was because her dad told her she's, she was entering law school. Her dad said, don't do it. This will hurt. This will kill your career. And uh, so we did the inter- we did an interview, but she wouldn't allow, she wouldn't sign the release one. Um, and that's, I understand. Um, but I could tell in her eyes how much it, it weighed on her as a, um, just, I guess the, the, the mystery of it and the oddity of it. Um, traumas are, it, you know how people do different things to cover trauma, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
or deal with it. Some people deal with it straight up. Other people put layers on it, you know, or layers in between it or pick jobs that, you know, pick careers that uh, keep them well away from it. Um, that's an interesting thing I, I find is like one of the girls that, um, the kids, uh, was in sixth grade when it happened. She's a sixth grade teacher now. Wow. Um, you know, it's, I, that's a whole study that I really haven't fully done. I find it fascinating though, is what they chose to do in their lives. And most of them have chose, most of them are, are amazing. You know what they've done. Um, some are artists, some are well-known artists, um, who don't want to speak publicly about it. Uh, there are, uh, military person, personnel, our current active military in, in, uh, Britain. And, um, you know, there's others that are attorneys, uh, you know, their careers are interesting models. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not your normal scene or your normal, like, you know, people in the old day, you know, they all tell, Oh, they live in trailer park. You know, this isn't that crowd. <laughs> you know, and, and what really solidified it to me was the adults, you know, the, the, the adults that knew the children, adults that were outside of the area, the pilot, I, I told you about, there were three of them that witnessed us from the sky and the night before, you know, so there's, it's not just a story about these kids. It's also a story about a whole bunch of people that witnessed this from different perspectives. The, the profound event that got reported was that playground, uh, that school. But there were there it was it was a whole week this went on. Um and for a lot of different people. I didn't unfortunately get to include many of those people because you're limited in time, you know, as far as how do you tell this story. It's so enormous. It goes way beyond aerial, you know, but aerial was such a just a moving event for so many people still is yeah that was an interesting way to start out your documentary because i didn't know all those other phenomenon that were happening around that area around the time like leading up to it that was also in the news i think even the bbc reporter himself was like originally alerted to the story based on other sightings um like that weren't at the school yeah so that was all completely new to me, very fascinating. But I wanted to touch on some of the more, let's say, if you're completely unfamiliar with the story, some of the more outrageous sounding things uh, from afar that that kind of come out in this overall story. And I'll just touch on two of them because, you know, the first one that was interesting to me was I didn't realize until watching your documentary that that the actual some of the children's drawings, well, specifically one of the children grown up who drew it uh, again, had drawn something that looked very, very similar to the traditional looking sort of gray um, alien look with the large almond eyes, the sort of round bulbous shaped Mm -hmm. head. And I was wondering what were you already aware of before, uh, you know, talking to some of these, um, you know, eyewitnesses, that they had, that their description had lined up with some of that or would, or did that come out in interviewing some of these people? And what are your thoughts on that in general? 
Well, I started to get uh, the drawings, right? I got a few, you know, I got several, I think probably 15 or 20 from John Mack, mm-hmm. you know, from his, from the, you know, after he passed away, I got a whole bunch of photocopies of those original drawings. And some of those had those, you know, it wasn't exactly like, um, I mean, they're children drawing, you know what I mean? They're, they're, they're drawing from different ages from, you know, uh, I think the youngest they were having do drawings were nine years old. Um, and so I did, I was, before I started meeting these people, I had researched quite a bit, um, and, uh, and looked at their drawings and, um, and, you know, over years collected all their, all their drawings. I think I got every single one, um, at this point. And, and then, uh, talking to them in person, um, of their description, which I found fascinating was, it was very similar to what people have been reporting for decades, you know, the same mm-hmm. particular biological form. And, um, but there were some key differences that, you know, if they were going to go along with what they was going on in the media, uh, which they didn't really have a lot of access mm-hmm. to at all in Zimbabwe at the time, uh, they would have kept the story consistent with what they've heard, but it wasn't. These things were in black. It was the same body configuration type that was, has been reported for years. Uh, I mean, people have to remember like all these science fiction things, these, those, all those science fiction things, X-Files and (laughs) X-Files, by the way, they consulted with John Mack before the X-Files even started. So they do research like a lot of these, any good, fictional filmmaker is going to research reality mm-hmm. and build fiction onto it. And that's been happening. Close encounters are the same way. Yeah. You know, if you go back in history and look at these films, they didn't come out of nowhere. They didn't come out of somebody's imagination. You know, a lot, they, they're based on actual, you know, reports that happened before that. Um, anyway, so yeah, I found their, uh, uh, description interesting because it was very different, you know, than, what I'd heard before. And then when I did the deep dive of the history of all the reports that was put together by Richard Dolan, um, on the, you know, it's, it's volumes, I think it's two or three volumes. Um, I did find two reports that had a very similar, uh, description, but it's still the same biological form, big eyes, a head larger than it looks like its body can support. Um, you know, uh, and it's usually reported as being gray. Um, this was very different. Their fate, their, their, their suit or whatever it was, the skin tight suit, uh, was black and their faces were more described. I mean, it's variations, um, but from pinkish whitish to, uh, gray. One other thing that I wanted to touch on that's, that was really fat. That's always been fascinating to me about this story, but that is, you know, that is also touched on in your movie is what seems to be some kind of, I I don't want to use the word telepathy, but some kind of mental projection of some kind happening where the children actually describe 
being relayed messages of some kind or describing effects that seem like it's not just a physical being, you know, moving, obeying the laws of physics in front of them where their perception seems to be manipulated. For example, one of the children describes things going in really slow motion or the way that they, the being seem to move seems to be completely unnatural. Like they're moving. So I, I think even some of them describe it almost like they're moving really fast uh, from what I remember. And then there was one other thing I'm, that was at the tip of my tongue about, um, Oh, oh yeah. The, the whole idea of, uh, that one of the children, I mean, hearing this children, this child at length say things like that they wanted us that she got some, conveyed some kind of message that they thought we were becoming too technological or she's, I don't, I forgot the exact word she used, but that is absolutely fascinating to me. And also I think one of the children described that the bean seemed like it was looking at all of them. Now, I don't know if that's just a, a child maybe describing being intimidated by something that seems like a, some kind of authority over them, or if that's actually describing something that, also speaks to something unnatural happening. Like, what does she mean by that? Like, was that also some kind of emotional projection? Or was this being able to gaze at all of the children at once and make them feel as if they were being directly paid attention to? Um, and I, what are your thoughts just on that in general as well? Like, this a whole idea that there appears to be, at least in some of these more credible stories like this aerial encounter, some element of this happening, um, some element of mental projection or something that is beyond, you know, our understanding of, you know, communication. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it's pretty consistent in the, the reporting, you know, of most incidents um, that there's some kind of phenomenon going on, uh, not only in, in like a mind to mind type of way um but also in a, in a in a manipulation of time and i don't know what causes that there are people that's you know have said well well if they're altering gravity which these things have been reported doing by the navy and the defense department and our government <laughs> finally um maybe when they manipulate gravity because gravity and time are interconnected um you know time is also um somehow controlled i don't know i i you know and i i do wonder when human beings because we don't have a lot of record of this um or study enough study about this but what happens when a human being runs into a creature that is far more advanced than it like what kind of thoughts do you have you know i wondered about well maybe they started thinking about their own environment because they got really scared and started thinking about that. Or, you know, these creatures were warning us. I mean, a lot of people think that. Um, I try to stay open about it. I do think they, if another species was looking at us and watching us, they'd probably give us a warning because <laughs> it's pretty obvious what's going on as far as uh, where our planet's headed. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people very much believe strongly that 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 it was a message, but you know, you, we don't, that's the problem with this whole field. I found it's like, geez, nobody's working. Nobody's working this really. Yeah. Nobody's doing the work that's necessary because they just write it off. They don't do any research. 
You know what I mean? There's great researchers out there. Um, God, Leslie, um, an investigative journalist who's been uncovering so much, Leslie King. Um, boy, there's so many people I could name that are on the scene now that uh, are just so credible and, and uh, doing amazing work. But this is something that really needs to be examined, not, not taken or, you know what I mean, as far as, uh, you know, don't take my word for it. <laughs> uh, we should, what we need to do is ask more questions and find out what exactly is happening. And that's what's so good about the documentary, because you let you tell the story from their perspective and it's through their lens. You're not narrating or dictating anything. Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole time standing still and it being such a profound experience that time seemed to not jive normally with how kids usually experience time. I mean, to me, that could be, I mean, anyone who's gotten like a car accident or a physical fight, time does seem to be different. Yeah, it slows down because it's such a profound, unnatural thing um, compared to everything else in your life. But the but the messaging thing is so out of the ordinary and hard to wrap your mind around. And that's, I think, the most disturbing part about this whole phenomenon to me is that these are children trying to explain something that they aren't, they don't understand themselves. I mean, we're talking about the 90s. Uh, climate change wasn't on the, <laughs> you know, certainly wasn't in the news at the time. Um, one of the girls explains that she just saw or she just felt. I mean, you don't even really know how to, to to relay what these kids are saying, but she felt just the image of a forest where trees were being taken down. I mean, that is extremely eerie. Looking back on this 30 years later, as we are seeing widespread deforestation, climate change that is reaching apocalyptic levels and to hear a child 30 years ago say that some entity beamed this into her being is really harrowing randall i you know the word you just said eerie is the word that i i mean yeah i mean there's no other way to describe that 30 years down the road and what they were talking about is happening uh yeah, that's stunning. And, you know, some people say that, well, John Mack introduced that to the kids. No, I have, I have interviews before John Mack got there and that they were already starting to talk about that. Um, why, you know, what, what was the message like that? That was already, you know, nobody, unfortunately, even John Mack, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though he was really good at it. And so was Tim. I mean, Tim was like, totally skeptical in the beginning he's like you sure you didn't see a helicopter sure (laughs) i'm sure this was this was a military thing i mean he goes on and on and these kids are like no that's not what it was no that's yeah no i mean those kids had to stand their ground and that's amazing in itself yeah that under the pressure that they had from the media and they had from the students and they had from the parents those kids had to stand up to everybody that was important to them and say, no, it really happens. So those kids, I mean, even they deserve a lot of credit. And the ones that went on camera, Emily, Emma, I mean, all of those, Robert, Luke, all of those guys, those guys, they, they deserve so much credit for having the guts to go public. I commend them. They didn't have to. It's 
And it's I, amazing. And even the people that didn't, I give you credit for even talking to me. You know, thank you. And what's really interesting to me, Randall, that I only had really came up for me a couple of weeks ago when I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a big um, UFO head. He's he's read a ton of books. It's this idea of this really, you know, sort of the classic Arthur C. Clarke quote about any advance uh, technology could be, you know, indistinguishable. I th- I'm totally botching the quote. Indistinguishable from magic to someone who doesn't understand it. And part of me wonders, whatever is happening, I'm I'm inclined to believe some of these stories that have elements like this sort of mind speak more than some of the ones that just are this cut and dry, almost just analytical, saw this object going around in the sky, sort of, you know, buzzing off into the distance. I I tend to believe the ones more that kind of like what you're touching on, that like there's elements to it that don't line up with the classic gray description which almost at lends more credibility to them seeing that like they're describing it wearing some kind of weird jump black jumpsuit and things that you that pop culture mm-hmm. wouldn't make you know safer to say based on like if they had been exposed to some you know et movie or something but i guess what i'm the point i'm trying to make randall is have you you were working on this so long did you ever get into the headspace where you, where you were like okay let's 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 assume these are these are real. The the children really experience this. These entities, whatever they are, these are real beings of some kind. But are they employing some form of deception, some form of uh, deception for some reason or another? You know, like based on the sophistication of whatever it seems to be that they're playing around with. I guess it would seem to me like uh, someone that sophisticated could could very easily manipulate someone's mind or deceive them in a way that you know by making maybe making them appear in a certain form or maybe even making them seem more powerful than they are or something to that effect and i'm just wondering did your mind ever go there at any point during this making this documentary oh yes um i mean it, it kind of i the only thing i had to compare it with is us and our our how we deal with lower what we consider lower order species, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are not, you know, we're technologically advanced and what we do, I actually experienced it for real in Africa with baboons. I mean, I had technology that freaked them out. Um, And I spent, you know, I, I was walking with them for a long time and I was told not to do it because they're not exactly safe animals. Um, But I, I'll never forget this. I, um, you know, when you spend time in wildlife, you have to walk in a certain way. So you know that if they're going to tangle with you, it's not going to be easy. That's how they judge, you know, um, if it's a predator or something like that. And, and, um, I was wondering if I could do it in a different way, particularly with primates and baboons. Um, and I stood still, didn't do the body language thing at all. And the, the alpha male approached me. And I had, I was ready for this. I had a, a lighter, cigarette lighter. <laughs> and uh, he came about four feet from me, stopped, stared in my eyes. I stared at him and I put out, you know, I had my hand out already because I didn't want to get, you know, they may be 90 pounds, but they, it, he would have torn me to pieces. <laughs> um, but I flicked that lighter and his eyes went 
into, he was just dumbfounded. I, <laughs> I like created some form of magic and he was just, and, and I watched his eyes shift from awe to absolute terror. And he wow. just ran off. I never saw him again. This was a troop down in, um, sort of near Cape town. Um, in another place I'd spent with a primatologist, I exchanged photographs for spending time with them, uh, Wildcliff. And, uh, anyway, that it, I think, I mean, I've, we're technological giants, the things that we, even flashlights, I mean, we, that's a pretty magical thing to a lot of creatures. I think that we can project light out of our hands, so to speak with these objects. Um, so, it wouldn't surprise me that a species that has been around a lot longer than us has a lot more tools. Uh, and, and that's the kind of big thing that really hit me. was like, God, we haven't even left our solar system yet. <laughs> you know, we're talking about going back to the moon. Um, what about a species that might have done that billions of years ago? And they're on to galaxies now or traveling across the universe. I don't know. But you got to kind of, uh, the only thing I, you only have to compare it to what you know, which is human beings and the creatures that we know on this planet. Um, it's hard to uh, speculate on things we don't know, except for the reports that come in. And we should take those a lot more serious because it, it, you know, that they, it may be something very subtle and likely so, you know, as far as, when you're dealing with another species, we do the same thing when we tame animals or go and tag, you know, what do you call it? Uh, tagging tag um, animals, that, uh, tagging capture, or what is it called? Uh, tag and recapture um, in the wildlife field. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we do very... Uh, what, 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 what might be happening to us uh, might... Uh, uh, as a species might be very similar to, to what we've, we're doing to other species as well. It wouldn't be surprising. It wouldn't surprise me. It would be surprising to me because um, things kind of replicate themselves on different scales. Well, it's, it's a good point to just say, you know, we only know what we know and we feel like we understand the capacity and the limitations of human knowledge and science and technology at this point. But it's simply not the case, and I think that that's what's so interesting about when you're talking about this kind of extraordinary level of communication that these children encountered that simply cannot be explained by anything that we understand as human beings. And that's why it's so easy to dismiss, perhaps, for some people, because – but it would make sense, wouldn't it, that if we are talking about some other entity that we do not understand – and we don't have the capacity to understand. And it would be something that's imperceivable, that's impossible for us to explain. Yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's uh, a lot of this is beyond our ability to conceive it um, mm. or grasp it. We have no uh, cross-references, no comparisons. So, yeah, I think that's... Uh, hmm... It's, it's a huge thing that, you know, I think what's holding us back a lot is that we, from old days of 
labeling things as good or evil, you know, instead of saying, well, maybe let's not look at that. I mean, I don't even see it that way anymore. I've yeah. seen horrific things ha- happen in the wild. No, it's not good or evil. It's horrible, but it's done out of necessity, right? When a, when a, an alliance hungry, he, it's just, uh, uh, watching a kill is a very disturbing experience. Um, but that's not evil. That is that lion needs to eat and feed its cups. Um, so I think that holds us back and science has held us back a lot because of ideas rather than us being looking at things with a little less perspective and a little less fear because it really boils down to fear. I think, um, of, you know, what we might find and God forbid we find something smarter than us. The arrogance of just being at the top of the food chain and, you know, and, and I think, you know, like you meant, you mentioned a really poignant aspect in the documentary about religion and how, you know, it's religion is so institutionalized and intertwined with politics and society and culture all all around the world but it, it it all has a common thread which is humans are the center of the story um and so once you extrapolate <laughs> the possibility that we are not and and you know whatever you do believe in in terms of a creation story that, that there, there are, are other, other beings, beings out, out there, there in other solar systems, systems and that the universe, universe is quite more expansive than than we would like to think, think. And it encompasses a lot more than we think that we understand, Randall. I think that's where you get you get it a little hard to to grapple with, which is why, you know, there's probably religion played a big part in a lot of parents not wanting to nurture this experience with their children. You mentioned one family who was, uh, you know, very Christian. Um, there were a lot of different religions at the school, but I think that probably played a big role in people not being able to process this coming from different faiths and it not gelling with their faiths because it completely blows apart the nature of what these doctrines tell us um and i just can't help but think you know if this were a mass sighting of like a fallen angel um what would the response be i mean i'm sure it would be much different if it somehow blended perfectly with uh, a faith that was pretty dominant in our society that kind of just fit naturally with it. Like, oh, these kids saw an angel and they must be telling the truth because that's kind of natural for us and fits into what we think we know. And and the fact that this was just something so beyond the realm of imagination, it, it was too scary to accept because then it just requires you to question all your preconceived notions. Yeah. I think that's right. I, John Mack called it, you know, well, it's in the, it's ontological shock or, smashing your worldview everything you believe in everything you know when when people run into this experience you know whatever you want to call it experience uh um you know run into creatures from another place your whole world shatters what you believe what you've been taught when uh you see something like that everything it's a very difficult time because for years because everything you have been taught to believe comes into question. Uh, John Mack talked about that a lot. Dr. Mack. Um, and, uh, I found that very strong. I mean, I'm, I was raised Christian, you know, I have a lot of 
Christian friends, Catholic friends, and I, you know, have no problem with religion. I do see its limitations. I love the fact that it's community. You know, that's really what religion to me is community. It's not about, you know, the very thing in the Bible, right? I've read it twice um, and flipped through it a million times, you know? So, yeah, you know, don't judge, you know, <laughs> judge not um, without you be judged. I'm not even sure what the exact saying is, but uh, it's all about judgment. And uh, um, it's interesting. Um, but I think that it is held back our uh, addressing these this phenomena that has been going on. Um, and it's kind of easy to want to think we're the only ones out here. And it's, you know, in, in, in a lot of species, I, uh, Darwin called it out a long time ago. Um, it's like a confidence in the species, like uh, survival, like when they encounter something that's really disturbing, they can tend to ignore it. They want to ignore it. So they think they're still, they have reason to um, carry on. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this sort of interest in it's, a, it's like its own species ego. Um, right. That, yeah, I don't, Darwin can explain it far better than I can. Um, but it's, I think that's kind of where we sit. The problem, to be honest with you, my feeling is we still don't think of ourselves as creatures, as animals. Right. Right. You know, we're, we're, where do we think we are? We're, you know, we actually do have a, a fossil record. <laughs> <laughs> It's fascinating, um, right? The separation yeah. of nature and man. It's like, what? Where? Where do you think we come from, man? I mean, look around. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Randall, um, you know, I I think I mentioned to you before that I never even really took abduction stories, alien folklore, really seriously before learning about this specific incident um, until my brother really kind of unraveled my uh my mind uh, let's just say <laughs> hearing the stories from these children i mean it really defied all logic to me and i think that's what's so captivating about this is that it typically when you hear about sightings it's traditionally one uh, maybe a couple people you know other than things that are really strange like the phoenix lights which is also a really interesting phenomenon but this is so much more bizarre to me because of the creatures that were seen and the amount of witnesses. Um, first, I want to ask you, before we get into the adults that you followed up with, first I want to ask you, did you encounter, when you were researching this, I mean, you were you know, you were on the road for 10 plus years doing this documentary, did you encounter people like me who were total, just totally absent from the conversation, never really engaged with the material until they came across the aerial school phenomenon? Yeah. I would say so. Uh, oddly, I ran in the thing that sticks in my mind. I was, I did, it was 15 years. I started this past September. It was in 15. So I'm on year. Yeah. I'm in 15 years. Okay. <laughs> I can't tell you how many <laughs> flies by, huh? <laughs> You're looking for the finish line. And there were so many times I'm looking for the finish line. I'm like, no, that's another mountain. God damn it. 
<laughs> and mountain oh of quicksand God, i can't believe i made it so many times i wanted to quit you know because it just didn't have the support of a anyway but uh the um what really touched me were you know because i would go places and people would hear hey or i'd be on the radio in a country you get on the radio because i'm looking for witnesses and i was lucky enough to get hooked up by nikki carter other people to get on the radio and people would call me. I, I mean, I located a lot of people that way. Um, and I had to vet them, find out, you know, who they were, whether they went to the, where they had to do all that work. Um, cause I didn't want anybody in the story that wasn't for real. Um, so, but the people that struck me the most were people that came up to me cause they'd heard I'd done this and they called me or I met them. And they came up to me and told me their stories. And, you know, some of those people said, I have never shared this with anybody. And they shared their story. And then the last thing they said to me is just, just please don't tell anybody. But they wanted to share it because they knew I would be open to hearing it because I was covering this story. So I heard, and I did probably 60 interviews outside of the aerial incident that had Nothing to do with Ariel had to do with another incident. Oh, wow. So you're saying it wasn't just people were wakened to their own curiosity by Ariel. You're saying that people felt more comfortable talking about anomalous experiences they had had because of Ariel and because they knew that you were working on them. That's a whole... Wow. That's a whole other ball of yarn to unravel. Wow. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, my God, I want to... I'd love to cover... uh, Yeah. I can't do it right now. But I, I, you know... I had time in between traveling. I mean, I went to some places I shouldn't have gone, but I went to go to do these interviews of the adult witnesses and other people that were witnesses, which, I mean, most of the majority of it is not in the film. That's what's funny. Um, but, you know, during those times where I was interviewing people on aerial, I was also, you know, uh, interviewing people that called me or, somehow contacted me or met me that said, Hey, I, I had this happen in 19, you know, whatever year it was for them. Um, and I would ha- do a sit down interview with them and I've got it on camera. It's another movie I'd like to make. It's called, uh, you know, it would be called UFOs in, in Southern Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, but it's just all those stories. I mean, people in, it's not people that the people that came to me, like the pilots, they didn't want to, they weren't interested in uh, uh, really being public about it. You know what I mean? Like even the pilot, when I interviewed him, he had his, he had to take all off his, his, I, cause he fly, flew for a commercial airline and he had to take off all his, any kind of identifying. He couldn't say what airline he worked for. Um, but he testified Basically, that's what it was uh, that the night before Ariel, him and two other pilots were up in the sky in two separate aircraft, um, commercial, uh, that witnessed it uh, by the border of uh, Zimbabwe and Botswana at um, 7.30 on the night before. So, I mean, to get a pilot to come forward or to get any of these people to come forward, that's a big deal, especially when I interviewed them. I mean, since... Pentagon and all that stuff has happened at the end of 2017 until today. I mean, anything before that, people were just 
super reluctant to speak at all. Um, so it was really hard to get people to trust you to say, hey, I'm not going to make a fool out of you. If you're honest with me, you tell the truth, I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? You know? Of course. And yeah. just based on the amount of experiences you've had doing this, Randall, um, and, and you don't have to wade into this if you don't want to, but I, I just wanted to, I was just curious about this, but um, did you ever come across anybody who approached you um, where you just immediately could sniff out some BS about them, their story, and just based on the amount of interviews that you'd done, I mean, like, was there, you know, how many of those experiences you had, or, or had you had none, or, you know, feel free also not to answer that. I don't think I've had any. <laughs> wow. I don't think I've had any. I would, I would remember that. First of all, like, there's no upside, you know, for, for somebody. I mean, I think I have met people like that mm-hmm. who... I don't know what their deal is, but they always have all the answers, you know, yeah. not, you know, I don't know. It just doesn't read like you can see it in their eyes and their body language, but I have met people like that, but not and sure. I sure didn't meet any of those people in Africa. Um, that's kind of a no BS, uh, part of the world. <laughs> yeah. There's no bullshit over there. Um, I, I didn't find any, um, but the majority of people, I mean, what's, there's no upside, you know? Yeah. The upside, I, I just have found that. I mean, I don't know what's, I just, I don't know. I mean, why would you want to put yourself in that box? And they're not out there trying to capitalize on the event, too. I mean, one of the women you interviewed said that she, her husband didn't even know about it because of how private these people are, how uncertain it is. And frankly, I mean, how hard it is to talk about, even with their friends and family. They're not out there making money off books. They're not doing regular interviews about this, Randall. So it, I know it probably took a lot of time to have them open up to you because they genuinely do not want to talk about it. Um, and I guess, I mean, you said that you had, I'm shocked that you had all these other interviews that all these other experiences open up to you from people who just knew that you were working on it. That's pretty incredible. What about the people who you weren't able to include in the documentary as adults? Because there were only... Uh, 10 or so sorry if i'm getting that number wrong adults that did follow up about this including the central figure that you did follow to the reunion um at Ariel school you know of course there are a lot more that didn't speak talk about how you found them um did any of the adults that you did contact stop believing in their own memory i mean did they rationalize it away? Um, uh, talk about a little bit about some of those experiences of people who you did get in contact with who did not choose to participate in the film and what they had to say. Um, well, there were people that were willing to talk about it. Um, you know, everybody was sort of that I found was in a different process of like thinking about it. You know, Emily was, and her family were really fascinating to me because of the religion aspect of it and the fact that they weren't allowed to talk about it from the beginning. You know, it was actually heartbreaking in a way. It wasn't just her, it was her brother and, you know, other people. And, uh, and um, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was why um, I uh, went with Emily you know, as a, uh, to follow as uh, one of the witnesses. Um, there were other witnesses 
that I interviewed but were not willing to go on camera. Um, I don't know how many of that was. Boy, I think I talked to 40. Wow. And then I talked to people that were their friends that weren't at school that day. I inter- you know, interviewed those people and asked them, like, did you believe your friends when you went back to school the next day? Did you miss, you know, you, you weren't there. Did you believe your friends? And they, they were like, absolutely. And that, that was interesting. Like, you get all this sort of, these little pieces of the puzzle, even from people that weren't there. Um, and then there were people that just didn't want to talk to me. That's just true. Uh, I don't know what their reasoning was, um, but that's true. So it was a, it was a, what, and it, it really struck me, the people that were willing to talk to me because I saw what, uh, the reason they didn't want to go on camera. Um, I saw the struggle, you know, that they were having themselves, um, with what happened. It wasn't a question. It, it wasn't like they were questioning what happened. Yeah. That was not what I saw. That's not what I saw. It's, it was, it was dealing with the, the consequences of what that means. Exactly. You know? And I think that's something wonderful that your movie touches on that I've heard, a, I've heard rarely touched on by other people who delve into this subject matter is the real PTSD that a lot of people who even just experience uh, witnessing a UFO can have afterwards from trying to integrate that experience back into their normal everyday life where that, those kinds of beliefs are not accepted. Um, but what, I mean, you know, one thing that I, I think is really intriguing about all this is that just watching some of these interview clips, the past ones done by, you know, when John Mack was there, and then the ones that you did uh, later on, they're very moving uh, accounts, some of them. Mm-hmm. So I, I can only imagine what it must have been like for you, especially some of the ones who didn't want to go public. I mean, the emotional difficulties they were having or the struggle you described they were having, I mean, it must have been, I'm imagining, very moving and affecting for you at times to be there in person. And can you describe that, you know, if if you had experiences yeah. like that, what, or maybe a particularly moving one that where you were just, you know, uh, you know, well, there with them when they were reliving this trauma or emotion? I never thought about that until just now, but it's it was true. Like I had, uh, I was trying to complete the story, and I found many times I felt like God. I don't want. To, I don't even want to do this to these people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't want to. They were struggling already. Not all of them, um, but I. There was a. I I felt like you know. I, it was just tough. I was pulled emotionally. Um, like I kind of almost wished I was there as a, as somebody to just list for them to just to listen to them without having to tell them, tell their story. Exactly. Um, yeah. That makes perfect sense. You know, you know, um, yeah, there were many moments of, uh, you know, meeting them and I'm always blown away by what I heard you know, every single one. Um, cause I was expecting somebody 
and I was looking for that, somebody to give me another explanation of what happened. Hmm. Um, and I'm still open to that, but I, I don't think that's what happened there. You know, if there's another explanation, I'd love to hear it. But it's got to be from somebody who's done their work, their homework, because I'm not going to entertain anybody who hasn't done the work and done the research. You know what I mean? Even in the film, like Alan Dershowitz says it about John Mack, like, you know, if you've got another theory, do your research, present your dissertation, you know, your, your presentation and let's debate it. <laughs> you know, that's kind of how I feel like a lot of the debunkers out there, they haven't done any work on, uh, you know, really. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of lazy dismissals, frankly. I mean, one of them I mentioned before to you, Randall, about it being some sort of elaborate puppet show hoax, um, which does seem to explain some aspects of it, I guess, from 120 yards away. You can have an expressionless giant puppet who does seem to be looking at everyone and no one at once and moving very slowly with black figures behind it. But... Once, I mean, there's there's things that just quickly fall apart. For example, I mean, a twelve year old well, is going to know. Close up. Right. These oh, so it wasn't. It wasn't I mean, yeah, it was close. Oh, yeah, because because one of them walked yeah, the, up. Right. Correct. correct. Yeah. Yeah. So at how least, close were we talking least. about? Because when you're talking about a twelve year old kid who's a teenager looking at a puppet show, doesn't really uh, <laughs> doesn't really make sense to me that they wouldn't know what they are looking at at that point. I could see if everyone was three years old. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah, those kids, I mean, they were they were educated far more than we are as far as nature and wildlife because of where they live. Like, there are dangerous creatures out beyond that playground. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a totally different deal. You have poisonous snakes, you've got baboons, you've got monkeys, you've got, you know, it, leopards. Lions generally are kept in uh you know fenced off in some area so they can't get to the population but you got all kinds of stuff out there and they the kids are you know like those kids are trained about what to see and um what the dangers of wildlife are and that danger also comes from people like that's another danger in africa that we don't understand um in the United States at all. Um, not to the degree that they live. And, uh, and that's real. And those, everybody, a lot of those kids grew up on farms there or were from the village. They know. So there were actually pretty good witnesses, uh, as far as educated, they were highly educated. I don't know too many kids of that age. If you watch those interviews, how, how actually articulate they are and oh, yeah. intelligent. Oh yeah. It's pretty amazing. I was like, God, I don't know anybody that age that's you know. <laughs> I know. I, I certainly wasn't that articulate when I was when I was uh seven, eight years old. Well I want to get into the the other, of course, biggest debunking point, the mass hysteria justification that a lot of debunkers use to dismiss this entire incident away because of the sightings that um precipitated it. All of the mass sightings, you mentioned pilots, um, you know, that this was like a week long thing that all these different phenomena were happening around Zimbabwe. It was on the news. They were saying even report this. These kids, you know, even though it was a rural school, a, a lot of these kids did have access to this information and, it, you know, maybe spread 
throughout the school. So it, you looked into that, right? Because, oh yeah, you know, I mean, the, this is this is the biggest talking point, and this is the biggest talking point that you hear is just like, well, it's just because they were suggested upon it by the news and pop culture, and and if it wasn't that, then it was Cynthia Hinn, the UFO enthusiast, who came and just kind of pulled it out of these kids. Yeah. I mean, I looked at that. I mean, it was definitely a big question for me, but there's so many unique things that to that particular event, it wasn't Cynthia Hine, I can tell you that. And, and, you know, it, Tim was the first one there. Um, and, uh, they already had their story, you know, that day, right. It wasn't something they had time to think about. Um, or, you know, how do you go from people seeing lights in the sky to such a intricate, complicated crime scene, you know, if you yeah. look at it from a crime scene perspective, which is what I had to do. How do you get the words that, that doesn't come from that kind of suggestibility, you know, then you have to take all those kids and the teachers themselves said it like we couldn't have rehearsed this or anything to get this amount of kids to say the same thing. It's just, how do you do that with children? Somebody's going to break. Somebody's going to tell the truth. You know, where is that? You know, where was it then? Where was it? And where is it now? It's 15 years. My name's been out there. My email's been out there. My phone number's been out there. I've contacted everybody. I haven't heard one thing, one person come to me and said, and even the person that in the movie who says, oh, they got were suggested you know, they were hearing the news. I went and found that guy. <laughs> I found him and I interviewed him. And I said, what did, you know, unfortunately it's not a movie, but I got the interview. It's going to appear soon. Um, and I asked, I said, you know, what you said, you thought they were, you know, the, they, that they were influenced by what was going on and meteorites and stuff like that, which there were none, by the way, because I also went to the astronomers discussed it with them, like what was actually going on in the sky at the time. They reported a meteorite activity, right? Well, then you'd go to the astronomers and they said, no, there was no meteorite activity. So was it this Russian rocket body, right? Which I believe probably did happen. Um, but that's not what people, that's not the only thing people saw. So I went and interviewed this teacher and he, I, he, I said, you know, you didn't believe the kids. I'd love to hear, what you think? And he said to me, he said, um, you know, I, I, I actually believe them. And I said, well, well, you didn't. And he said, I said, what changed your mind? And he, he said the consistency in their report, it didn't change their story over time, which I saw in all the archival because it was recorded, you know, six different sources over a three year period of time. You know, that story stayed consistent and still to this day, the current interviews that I did, uh, it's the same story. So I don't know how to, you know, if I'm wrong, I, I don't think so. I've done the best work I could possibly do. I think, uh, Tim was right. I think Cynthia Hine was right. I think, uh, John Mack was right, uh, about why they, the story still to this day since 1994 holds water. Um, and there are plenty of witnesses out there, plenty. And I wish they would come forward as much as I can put out a movie and speak about it. Those are the people that can tell you because I can't change their minds. 
Yeah. These are not just kids. These are adults. I can't change their minds. They know, you know, they know what they saw. And I can't argue with them about that. Um, and there's plenty of witnesses to the, to what happened in Zimbabwe. They just, you know, those people, I encourage them. I know it's hard to come forward. Um, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's going to stop, you know, the, the, the critics or whatever, the bunkers, you know, it, being critical is fine, but do your homework on it. You know, I would have dropped it if I thought it was, uh, I, you know, I would have covered the story still, to be honest. I told, as I said before, like, regardless, it's an interesting story, no matter what they saw. But I do believe that it's, uh, I, I, I believe them. I do. I mean, they're not lying to me. I know that. One interesting thing that I, I did a little bit of background research before, uh, speaking to you, Randall and, I was trying to cross-reference to see if, um, you know, things like Communion or X-Files was already on television uh, before this incident happened. And both of them had already, you know, there was already like a made-for-TV movie about Communion in, I think, 89. And the X-Files had already been on for a few years. So there was, you know, I guess I suppose there's some possibility that some of the children could have been exposed to that. But there's no evidence that you've come across... Uh, that has suggested that or, or to your knowledge of any debunkers tried to say that the kids all watched an episode of the X-Files and then pretended that they hadn't, or that some had, you know, that they had been exposed to some specific uh, thing that it, it existed in like pop culture already. I know that, you know, there's this idea that, Oh, you know, they hadn't heard of UFOs or aliens. And then, but, but I wanted to know specifically, has anyone tried to allege that, well, they actually indeed would have already heard of UFOs and aliens, and here's what they were influenced by. Like, has anyone tried to say, claim anything like that to debunk it? No, I, I, you know, I, that's a good question, but I, the problem with that is you have people from the village. Uh, you have missionary kids that went to that school who had no access you know, like Emily herself, the main character, she was, you know, she would get videos in the mail, you know, from the United States and they were cartoons, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and then you had more wealthy uh, farmers and some people that were in politics. Uh, that's another avenue. There was a, one of the children from a major politician in Zimbabwe was also witness to this, um, that ended up uh, no comment um, as far as my going down that uh, that road to interview that person. Um, but you had a variety of people. I mean, you know, the, the people that did have access to media had these huge 15, 10, 15 foot satellite dishes. So there were a few, there were not many people had that. That was, you're talking about a hand, not even. I'm only aware of two people that had that, that kind of lifestyle, so to speak, um, where they had satellite. Um, so yeah, I mean, I did, did look into that quite a bit cause that was a question. Uh, but, uh, the problem with that is also, and what John Mack found, others found is the trauma, right? The, the emotional, 
nature of their reports, their body language. I had, I've had, I've consulted with body language. Um, I've, well, I've consulted with psychiatrists, uh, teachers of children, uh, law enforcement about their body language as children, whether they were being honest or not. Eye movements, facial recognition, you know, not facial recognition, facial expressions, everything. And what I've gotten back from those people, because they do this for work, are, you know, this is, they deal with these, they deal with children all the time. I do not. Um, and that the, the that consistent reports I've got back, they're telling the truth. They oh, yeah. I mean, even as an adult, right, even as an adult, I'll look back at really um, formative memories of mine or scary experiences, and I'll completely question my memory. I'll be like, did I just literally make that entire story up? And that's what's so interesting about the adults in the documentary. They don't question their memory for a second, Randall. They know exactly what they saw, and they can retell it as if it were yesterday. And that's what's so incredibly fascinating about following these people, getting them on camera, and having that same kind of emotional response as they did 30 years prior. It's just something that you cannot make up. You really can't. Um, Not on this level. I want to just close this out by following up with something that you mentioned if I heard you correctly, that there was actually an adult that witnessed a similar type of creature on a different day. Did I, did you say that? Can you, can you talk about that? Uh, well, somebody John Mack had interviewed on the next day. It was somebody that was driving, um, on the road by the school at the time and uh, at night and had, uh, run into these creatures on the road. Um, he called, he didn't know what to, he was from the village himself and he didn't even know what to call them. He, he said they almost, well, first of all, (laughs) most, all the time, a lot of times they'll immediately say it was their ancestors. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, and he, the way he describes them, because they were so thin was like skeleton, like almost like walking skeletons, which is very interesting. Um, and it, it was a big enough deal for him to swerve off the road and land in the ditch. And um, his wife was with him at the time. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's just one of many other things that went on. It's not just the, Ariel wasn't the one-off. Like people think, oh, Ariel's cool. Uh, no, there was an awful lot of stuff that happened around it. And I interviewed all those people. So, but that, you know, that's not the story I was covering. Well, it was, but, but you know what I mean? If I had to, which I tried to do in the beginning when I started to do the rough cut was three hours, you know, and it was good. (laughs) Like, but it was just, we can't have all these people in this film uh, to tell this story. But the story is way wider than just aerial school. It just keeps going and going. I mean, especially, yeah, like you said, with the events that happened before and after, you can make a 20-hour documentary just with all the eyewitness testimony, all of the people talking about their experience. Um, Randall, yeah, we appreciate... Yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, they're 
even the adult witnesses, what they saw from wherever perspective they were, whether they were in South Africa or Zimbabwe or Botswana or, you know, I mean, it's the subtle like things that they notice because, you know, they, people, uh, their skies are very dark over there. Uh, they don't have a lot of light pollution in that, in that continent. That's why it's, it's called the black continent for, for that reason. <laughs> um, one of the reasons is because it's the night skies are absolutely stunning and people spend a lot of time out in the night sky. And a lot of our launches from NASA actually go over Africa. So they're used to space debris, <laughs> believe it or not. There's like a little museum of all American rocket parts that have fallen into Africa. Um, but, um, yeah, their, their descriptions of, of this thing, uh, are absolutely fascinating. Um, and you know, people that were veterinarians, uh, RAF pilots, you know, these are people that were on the ground that witnessed and, you know, that's another whole part of the story. I wish more, more of those people will come forward. Well, hopefully this documentary opens that gateway for people to feel more comfortable telling their experiences, their stories. Um, Randall, you have done an incredible feat. I know that making a documentary is no easy task. It's taken you a, a whole lot of labor of love, a lot of time. It's an incredible documentary, and it's a fascinating, extremely compelling story that I encourage everyone to watch. As you mentioned it's easy to dismiss something because it's uncomfortable. Um, trust me, I, you know, I would have liked to until you see these kids, until you hear their stories and you look into their eyes and no one can tell me um, anything until they do just that, until they watch your documentary and then we can talk. Like you said, do the research, do the work and then make up an opinion, but, but at least hear what these kids have to say because it's unlike anything you've ever heard. Um, Randall, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Media Roots Radio. It was a, a great conversation. Can you just leave us with where people can watch the documentary, how they can spread the word? Um, thank you, Abby. I really appreciate you having me on. It's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. And um, you can, uh, yeah, we're, we just released streaming. It's on Amazon um, and iTunes and on all the other platforms at this point. Um, or you can go directly uh, to aerialphenomenon.com. That's where I had to release from um, <laughs> in the in the end. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I just want to get the word out. That's pretty much what's my. I think it's a huge story that's happening right in front of us, and it's not uh, it's not being talked about enough. I mean, not just this story, the entire story of this phenomenon. That's A-R-I-E-L phenomenon.com. Randall Nickerson, thank you so much for everything. Really appreciate your time, all the energy you put into this. Best of luck, my friend, and we will talk to you soon. You too, Abby. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much, Randall. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Media Roots Radio. Please consider becoming a patron of Media Roots Radio and patreon.com slash media roots radio. My brother has a huge archival database of fascinating material ranging from the esoteric to just the 
political rantings of my brilliant brother. So check it out. Media Roots Radio, Patreon.com. We really appreciate your support. We will keep them coming. Um, It's been a 10-year project, Robbie, and we're stoked that you guys are still on board. 